Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. And this week, we are joined back again with our fearless legislative... Liaison, Ivy Ivy Riggs. Ivy. How are you? We're good. So really the big story, there's a couple of things, but one of the bigger stories from this week is the State Board of Education had their monthly meeting. Yeah, just this morning, actually. Um, Good good timing. Um, So uh, last or maybe earlier this week, I've lost track of days, either late last week or earlier this week, say uh, Superintendent Hoffmeister put out uh, what she was bringing to the board as her budget request. And then uh, kind of the steps of that, you know, every state agency has to have a budget approved by their board and then present to the legislature to the appropriate committee. So uh, the state department wrote, you know, I'm sure the staff of each department kind of got together and talked about their needs. Um, They did add in some staff raises, so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then it has to be approved by the board before it can go before the legislature. So uh, today was that meeting, and they approved it unanimously with really encouraging conversation about it, frankly. Uh, It does include a $5,000 teacher pay raise across the board, and it includes some operational money, some formula money that uh, she specifically said uh, is hopeful that will reach support employees in the way of a pay raise as well. It is not earmarked in that way. Um, so, you know, it's 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 uh, it's a little tougher. Uh, we, we would love to see earmarked raises, but we do know school leaders like that local control. So um, so those two are the probably the big things. Uh, it does call for more counselors to help with our uh, mental health issues going on in schools. Um, and, and, you know, but those are the those are the big increases. Yeah. So how much a total increase is this budget proposal compared to last year? This one, I want to say, uh, since it just happened this morning, Catherine, I really haven't done a big side by side yet. But the um, the amount of increase, I think they said was 12 uh, percent. Uh, okay. Just four hundred thousand dollars, which four hundred million a million. million increase. So this is a total $3.5 billion education budget that they're asking for. So I want to say last year was right around 3.1. So it is an, is an, it is an increase The the teacher pay raise specifically was a $310 million package. And then to be honest, Ellen, do you remember, um, how much the set aside for the operational, uh, how much an increase? I can't remember. Was it, was it 60 million? Six, Something yeah, like that? That's, yeah, 60, 60 million. million. That was 60 million. I, I know I read it earlier in the week and then yeah. I slept. Yeah, well, that that that's a good thing and it happens often. every day. Yeah, we, you should try to do that every day. And did it... Did I see something? Did it also have something in there about OLAP for educators, kids, and colleges? It is calling for every, it dependent of every school employee, or is it just teachers? I I, I just said teachers. I, 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 I think it's school employees, but I could be wrong. 
OLAP, which is Oklahoma's promise, which would be um, free college for, yeah. for children of educators, regardless of income. Right yeah. now, some educators can qualify, but honestly, if you're only one income household, would you, would you for the most part qualify? So, yeah. so, so those were kind of the big, those were kind of the biggies in the budget. And there's some other things, but. Yeah. So, I mean, is it done? Is that. They, we get, we, they signed it. They approved it. So we get a raise, right? Right. So what, <laughs> we what happens next, right? Like, so, the, so what, right. So what happens next is I want to say it's next week. I'll have to double check the date on that. Uh, they, they uh, present that to the appropriations uh, subcommittee on education. Uh, they do that every year. Uh, present to committees at the Capitol, and then the legislature gets to write whatever bills they want. To be, to be honest, the state agency can call for raises and can call for increase in budget or lowering budgets, but they really, um, those are just recommendations. And, and keep in mind, raises can come in the form of bills and they can come in the form of budget agreements. So, you know, if, if we'll think back to the walkout, the bill that called for for a pay raise, um, one of them actually did pass, and then uh, the support employee pay raise was actually not a bill, if you'll remember. It was actually part of the bu budget agreement. So there's a lot of ways pay raises can happen for state employees, for educators, for you know all of us, but um, that that really is up to the legislature, and then obviously would have to be signed up by the governor. So one of the things when I was watching this meeting that I thought was really interesting is they had a like a slide that showed the impact of funding teacher salary and the increase of teachers and if that made an impact. And you could see clearly um, right after the teacher pay raise in 2018-19, there was an increase. And then a year after that, there was another increase in teachers. And then immediately it dipped down again. Yeah. yeah so, I, you know, I think that's part of the narrative that we've been trying to say. We went, uh, you know, a decade without pay raise and a decade of cuts. And so a significant, you know, during the walkout, it, it was a significant investment into education. And legislators keep mm -hmm. saying We've given more than, than in state history, but we're still not competitive with other states. Yeah. So, so I think the narrative, in my opinion, should be, how do we make it recurring? How do we keep mm -hmm. up with what other states are doing? How do we remain competitive? If you'll remember, um, we saw uh, the Department of Labor put out that, that educators in Oklahoma are still at a 32% gap yeah. between other professionals with the same education. Yeah. So, so it's no wonder that we are not recruiting at the same rate. It's no wonder that we are not retaining at the same rate. So Ellen, I think you're right. If we see a significant pay raise, I think that will help keep people from retiring. I think that will help recruit folks into education, uh, maybe alternatively certified. If people think, oh, this is something that the state is actually going to invest in, that's mm -hmm. maybe something I will look into if I'm interested in a job change, things like that. But it can't be every five, seven years. Yeah. 
I mean, it can be because it has been. <laughs> but but it, does this does this plan hopefully kind of put us on a pathway to? I know it. I know the budget request is only a year, right? So, but that's what we have to do. Is you got to start the you got to start it, put it in motion, and what are you going to make it to be sustainable and to keep recurring? Yeah, if you if you read the the information that Superintendent Hoffmeister put out. Um, she does have a long-term plan. She will no longer be the state superintendent though. So we have to hope that that continues. But I think her vision was by say the year 2025, we are not that far away from it, sadly. Mm -hmm. um, she hopes to get us, was it 65,000? Mm -hmm. She hopes yeah. to get that average salary up to where we are really competitive. Not at, not only compared to other states, but compared to other professions that, that people will covet this profession. So um, I, I do think it's going to take uh, a long-term vision, but you're right in that the state can only um, be liable for one year at a time. And so it's real tricky when we have term limits uh, to, to keep the ball rolling and keep that momentum going. So there's also a special session next week. There is. Um, it was uh, singular in nature. Um, there has been like a two and a half year committee <laughs> uh, that has changed. Some members of it have changed, but the core part of it, and it's strictly to use uh, emergency relief funds, uh, ARPA funds is what those are, uh, those, the, the ones that are specified in this special session. And the uh, committee that met approved unanimously every single um, recommendation uh, that was brought from the, the, the legislative committee, approved everything that the ARPA committee referred to it. And those are the bills. Those will be put into uh, bills that are already written that were just kind of shell bills. And those will be uh, passed in special session. I think they've set aside three days for special session, and those are the only things. And those are things like um, relief for healthcare workers. Um, I'm trying to think of some other topics. None of them were education related. There were some broadband issues, expansion of broadband, which does, you know, yeah. kind of educate help a little. Yeah, it, it, it does affect our our kids and our communities. Um, none of them are education related, but. To be honest, I glanced through there, and there are a lot of really great things that will help Oklahomans that are struggling. Uh, there's so, it's a, so it sounds like this special session is going to be to approve bills to use the federal money that we have Correct. to get it to where it needs to be. So Correct. Nothing, nothing like, you know, we'd heard like tax cut proposals, stuff like that. Or Well, if you'll remember, wish, we have two special sessions. Oh, darn it. <laughs> the other special session that currently is on pause, um, the, that's the one where they had talked about tax cuts and okay. uh, inflation relief topics, things like that. And that is not happening next week. Um, oh, okay. That's not okay. to say that it won't happen, but that will not be included in this special session activity. It is confusing. It, there are two separate could it possibly just like poof go away? Not they, ever happen? They could definitely choose to not come back. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good day. The, the executive or the call for special session says they had to meet and they did. Oh, right. They, 
They right. did not yeah. pass any bills. They had some discussions. Uh, they did file some bills. Nothing was passed. So um, could it go away? The answer is yes. Will it? Mm. I have no idea. I am not on the special list of people to know. <laughs> right. Ivy, we've got to get you I know. To get their phone numbers to them. I gotta I gotta get me a back phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, the final thing that happened this week was there was a ruling at the Supreme Court on mask mandates via governors declaration of an emergency. Yes, which is a really confusing way to say a really confusing thing. So it, it is, it is, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. So if you'll remember the mask mandate bill passed two sessions ago, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and it yes. said, unless there's an emergency declaration from the governor, no school could mandate masks. And what the Supreme Court ruled is that that is not the legislature's decision to make, that they overstepped their authority. And that is a local decision that would should be and must be made by local schools and their locally elected school boards. So um, all of the hollering and screaming about ignoring the legislature um, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court ruled on the side of the schools that chose to do that. And if you think about that, think about how high the numbers were in Oklahoma County, Tulsa mm -hmm. County, just population alone, but in, I don't know, Pittsburgh County or Washington County or Kay County, maybe they weren't. To be honest, I did not follow them. So those local school boards and the school leaders made the decisions that they thought fit their community. And if their school board approved it, none of them were done just by a superintendent sitting in his tower, you know, waving a wand. It all was done by a superintendent making a recommendation mm -hmm. to a school board and the school board approving it. And so the Supreme Court, what they said was, that is the role of schools and school boards and, and the legislature overstepped. You know, when we always talk about our schools are the hub of the community. And this really just highlights that, that when, when you have a crisis, it needs to be the decision of that, of that local school board that says, what is the, for the health and safety of our students, our employees in the community, we need to be able to um, listen to experts, make decisions, and make the call. Absolutely. And I, and I think... I think we forget sometimes how unique the needs are in different schools across our state. Um, and, and only the folks in that local area know their community best. I think, I think kind of a, a secondary issue, I'll be curious to how it plays out in the courts. If you'll remember, some folks got fired from oh, a wow. group that yeah. had a mask mandate because the staff people uh, refused to wear those masks. Mm -hmm. so, I I am no lawyer and do not even play one on TV. So I am very curious to see how that will play out in the courts based on the Supreme Court decision. So interesting. I know you did not ask my, about all of my curiosity. But that, that just made me very curious. 
So now I'm thinking. I had forgotten about that whole. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that time period, I've just. <laughs> it was overwhelming for all of us. Ellen has school-aged children at home, and so she was, you know, working in pods with a few other families to try to keep her kids safe, and and you know. We we all were just kind of trying to keep us and our families safe. So it is uh, it's a little fuzzy, isn't it? Yeah. But we re- remember back to last year about this time. That's when the courts actually did an injunction for this order. It's taken a year, but even though I I I watched I read the comments on a social media thread about it, and um, I know I know I shouldn't have. But what was interesting, they were like, yeah, it's already over, or it's going to be over, but it sets precedence. Those decisions set precedence. And so if for some reason this happens again, you've, you've got precedent set that um, don't be doing that. It, right. I think it does. I will say it does give me one tiny, tiny concern, maybe a little, maybe a little bigger than tiny, is that will this keep a governor? from yeah. declaring a needed state of emergency. Mm. You know, I just I just think um, you know, all of these decisions have consequences and I I sure yeah. I sure yeah. hope that we will continue to keep people's health in mind instead of politics. See, I was going on the positive aspect of that, Ivy, but no, <laughs> you took me down a different path. <laughs> Catherine, when you live at the Capitol, you become <laughs> That is true. Well, Ivy, thank you for joining us this morning and catching us up with the politics of this week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And this morning, we are joined by defense attorney Vicki Behenna. Good morning, Vicki. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So tell us a little about yourself. How did you become a defense attorney? Oh, it was a... um route that was never a direct route anywhere. So um, I was born in Oklahoma County, lived here most of my life, um, went to law school at uh, Oklahoma City University School of Law after graduating from OU. Um, I had never had anybody in my family that ever went to college. I was the second person. My brother was the first. Nobody had ever gone postgraduate um, schooling. Um, so I went to law school, uh, got out. I tried a case in front of a federal judge. I lost horribly, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the judge either felt sorry for me or saw something in me and said, why don't you go interview at the U.S. Attorney's Office, which I did. Uh, got a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. The U.S. Attorney's Office does all federal prosecutions for the Western District of Oklahoma, wow. so Oklahoma City in the western part of the state. And I did that thinking, well, I want to be a trial lawyer. What better way to learn how to be a trial lawyer than try cases? Um, I thought I'd go for four or five years, and then I'd go back out into private practice. And, um, I mean, I stayed for 25 years. I was part of the Oklahoma City bombing investigation and assigned by the attorney general to be part of the prosecution team that tried Timothy McVeigh. Mm -hmm. And I stayed at the U.S. Attorney's Office for 25 years. They offered an early out. Um, I had an experience with my eldest son who went through the military justice system, and it gave me a different perspective on the justice system. So I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, went into private practice, did criminal defense work, which I've done for nine years now, 
And then simultaneous to that, the dean of the law school at OCU asked me to head up the Oklahoma Innocence Project. So I've done that for about eight years. But yeah, that that's the background in a nutshell. So you've done like both sides of it, from the prosecution side to the defense side. Which, yes. Which one do you like the best? See a role in both? I, I do see a role in both. I mean, obviously, under our system of justice, both are equally important, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the prosecution and the prosecution and the defense is required by the Constitution. Um, so they're equally as important. I, I feel um, on the defense side, I do a lot more counseling with people yeah. than I did on the prosecution mm -hmm. side, trying to help their family understand uh, the charges against them and the evidence against them and evaluating that and and helping them make decisions that's best not just for my client, but for their family as well. And then, of course, the Innocence Project, I yeah. see where we make mistakes on the prosecution mm -hmm. side and how to narrow those mistakes so we don't wrongfully convict innocent people. So what? tell us a little bit about the Innocence Project and kind of the work you all do. Yeah, so for people that don't know, the Innocence Project is a network of projects normally associated with law schools. And the mission is to find evidence of innocence for people who have been wrongfully convicted. So DNA evidence. Back mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, our DNA um, science wasn't as astute as it is now. And so um, that's what we look for. We look for evidence that wasn't tested, DNA evidence that wasn't tested, or forensic science that's since been debunked, or witnesses that recount testimony. So that's what we look for is evidence of, of that kind of, um, well, that kind of evidence or those facts that then will help us get back into court. Because you have to have new evidence to get back into court. You can't just rehash what happened during the client's so trial. So every time there's an appeal, it has to be something different. Not not on a direct appeal. Oh, a direct okay. appeal really looks at the errors that occurred in oh. that trial. The Innocence Project and what we do post-conviction is completely removed from that. Oh. It is actually new evidence. Wow. Ooh, interesting. And do people, I mean, how many people are asking you to look at relook at their case? There are 1,500 people in the state of Oklahoma after the Oklahoma Innocence Project opened that asked for us to help them. Wow. Wow. 1,500. And and we kind of see when we talk about just the justice system and, and the impact it has on families, students at our schools, yes. you know, and that going through that process, whether it's you're innocent or you're not innocent, is a direct impact on our, our students every day. It, yes. I mean, I, I can tell you of an experience, I won't mention his name, but I have a client now who is going to have to report uh, to a federal prison, and he's got he's got a ten year old and seven and eight year old, yeah. and trying to explain to them and help them understand. So you're right; the ripple effect of incarcerating somebody doesn't just affect that person; it is mm -hmm. a, a, a direct impact to the family. Yeah. So you've put your name on the ballot to run for Oklahoma County District Attorney. Um, why now? Why do this? I believe that the district attorney's position, even though you have to run on, you know, as a Republican or a Democrat right. or an independent, has really nothing to do with politics. It has mm -hmm. everything to do with experience. And the person who is the district attorney should have the experience to understand how to make the weighty decisions that a DA has to make. Mm -hmm. 
you know, who to charge, what crimes to charge them with, what kind of sentences to recommend. And so I've spent over 35 years of my life in the criminal legal system, and I care deeply about the system. Mm. I, I care deeply about the people that find their way in the criminal justice system. I care deeply about their family. I care about the victims who are hurt by and traumatized yeah. by people who commit violent crimes. And so I, I, all I can tell you is that I jumped in now because I care. Mm -hmm. I really, I really care a lot. So when we think about our schools and we think about our students and knowing Oklahoma, and we were really focused on this work before the pandemic. We were really honing in, our schools mm -hmm. were honing in on trauma mm -hmm. and looking at students' ACE scores and, and helping families. And then the pandemic happened. It just kind of came to a screeching stop. Is there a role of the DA um, before they get into the system, before they even get into the juvenile system, that the DA can be working with our public schools, with our entities to help be preventative in those measures. Yeah, you know, having seen the criminal justice system from all sides mm -hmm. like I have, I think it's not only the responsibility of prosecutors, but of our community at large. And let me, if, if I can, mm -hmm. indulge me a minute and just give you an example. I was appointed uh, by the uh, a federal judge in Tulsa to represent a young man on a very serious uh, federal crime. It was federal RICO. And he had already been facing 30 years having been convicted in Tulsa for murder. And um, the first time I saw my client, I mean, he had tattoos from his ankles all the way up to his earlobes. And, you know, in, in all honesty, I was a little bit uh, concerned uh, to sit in the room with him. But uh, the entire time I represented him, he was respectful and kind. And as we were getting ready for sentencing, I started asking him about his his childhood. Mm -hmm. And this was a, a, a man who had a father in prison the entire time he grew up. His mother was addicted to substance, illegal substances. His extended family were all addicts. He told me stories of spending Christmas holidays in his mom's car because they had nowhere to go with his two other siblings. Yeah. He told me about not being able to read and being made fun of. And then he told me that he entered the, the juvenile justice system when he was about 14 or 15. And I remember asking him, you know, were, were you afraid? Because I understand, you know, that can be pretty violent in, in uh, those in-custody situations. And he said, no, I mean, I wasn't scared at all. It was the first time I had a bed to sleep in. I knew where I was sleeping that night. And I had three meals a day. And then he met his teacher. And he had met a teacher who helped him learn how to read helped him get through high school, graduated with a high school degree. That teacher took him into her home after he graduated from high school, helped him find a job, helped him get on track. He fell in love. He had three children. Unfortunately for my client, uh, he had unresolved addiction problems, and he had an injury uh, at an MMA match. I had to have surgery. The doctor put him on opioids post-surgery. He then started a life of addiction, couldn't get off it, and committed these horrible crimes. But I tell you that story because it's not only singularly the role of a DA or a defense lawyer, but it's a community mm -hmm. that should reach out and help those children. I can't help but think, had my client been reached when he was 
seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Had, had, would his life be different now? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what community does, including teachers. I mean, teachers are an incredibly important focal point in that because they have direct contact with these young people who are facing, I mean, issues that I didn't face when I was a kid. My kids didn't face. Mm. I brought everybody down. Yeah, no, I'm no, really sorry to no, do that. But it, it's you know just, what? It, it brings back our focus. We have done so much work over this last year around community schools and making sure that our schools are the hub. They're the hub. And so what can we do? All those outside resources that are there, that are available, they're ready to help, right? but bring them into the schools. And it not only for the students, but for the families as well. That's and right. So, um, it just, it highlights that point. It, that You know, there are families that go through things that you and I would never experience or, or know anybody that's ever experienced. And you're right, for them, mm-hmm. particularly the children, to feel like, they're not ostracized, they're mm-hmm. not alone, that there's a community there that wants to help them through really difficult situations of seeing a loved one, a mom, a dad, an aunt and uncle, a grandparent go to jail and what that separation means to them mm-hmm. and understand there are people that I care about them and that they'll make it through, you know, with the help of of others. It might not be directly their mom or their dad, it might be a teacher, it might be a counselor. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I think that's critically important. We just got to break that chain, right? Absolutely. And I think it takes the community. It does. It, it, it's not a standalone solution. And so, so many of us don't know the level of work out in our community that are working together, whether that be through police work or district attorney work or mm-hmm. schools and um, county commissioners. I mean, there's so many groups that are working towards this collaboration. And the more people we have, making those conversations together, the better we are. Yeah. And Oklahoma County has a wonderful nonprofit uh, community that really has stepped in to try to help this. So yeah, I I definitely think there's an appetite for people to see the sense of community to come around and help, not just people that are convicted, but their families. Mm -hmm. The DA plays so many different roles. So it's protecting our citizens, making sure everybody stays safe. Um, protecting our taxpayer dollars. Yes. So uh, I know it's kind of in the court system now with, uh, you know, we we have charter schools that have public funds, but we also have, you know, some of those can go to for-profit and we've had some mismanagement of that. Mm-hmm. Tell us, you know, DA has a role in that as well. Well, sure. I mean, uh, the district attorney's primary role is community safety. That includes the protection of taxpayer funds. And, you know, when I was in the new U.S. attorney's office, I did a number of public corruption cases. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely familiar on how to do those investigations and how to prosecute those cases. But any any crime like that where there is an indication of misuse of public funds needs to be investigated and needs to be prosecuted if the evidence leads the DA to believe that a crime's been committed. So absolutely those are that is the the DA in Oklahoma County has a significant role in making sure those investigations get done. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, let's just take some time and catch up with Catherine. 
Oh my goodness, Ellen. I, you know, I am a glass half full gal. And to hear yesterday the state board approve a budget request that sets in motion um, getting competitive pay for teachers, support employees, um, gets more educators into our, our kids' classrooms, gives me hope and, and just re-energizes my thinking that November the 8th is going to be the most important day of our life in Oklahoma on election day. It is and critical. And I think, you know, the thing we always talk about is a budget is a priority, like setting yeah. your priorities. Yes. And, yeah. and I do think it is so watching the priorities pop up and be like, yes, that is what I want my public schools. That's where I want yeah. investment. And yeah. so I did that. You gave me hope too. Yeah. Just, you know, I, I think about always every day I think about, I think about my Lincoln and my Ralston and Walker and Beckland and their future and, and their future can't happen unless we, we start today and start putting money into our schools, into our educators pockets to get them here. I mean, to think about 3000 emergency certificates at least, and knowing that there's a thousand vacancies out there. I mean, these are jobs that these are spots that aren't even filled. So that means those are larger class sizes. And I think people lose sight of that. It's larger class sizes. It's um, not enough resources, not enough services for our students that deserve and need them. And so it just is so difficult. And but I have hope. And you know, we um, you know, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about getting out the boat. And we've got a day of action coming up on October the first. And uh 10,000 doors. We want to knock 10,000 doors to that's voters. A, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. To just not not for a particular candidate, but just to say. We need your voice at the polls. We need you to go vote. And um, I know information is going to be going out to our members um, this Saturday in our legislative update, in our EDGE next week. So please, oh my goodness, sign up. I'm going to be out. I'm going to get on my tennis shoes. We have a, that day, October 1st is a crazy day. We have committee Saturday. We have our fund uh, committee meeting. Then we have a board meeting. I'm putting on my tennis shoes after that. And I'm going to knock some doors um, because I need to, I need to see people's eyes and, and I need to hear, I need to like see their head shake. Yes, I am going, I have a plan and I'm going to go vote. Awesome. And it's two hour shifts. So it's super easy. Yeah. You know, that's totally doable. Yeah. They're doing it in Norman, Stillwater, Oklahoma city and Tulsa area. Awesome. Awesome. I so, can't wait. Good. I love I love knocking doors. I love it. <laughs> well, thank we want to thank Vicki Behenna and Ivy Riggs for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. 
And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us on friedokrapodcasts at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.